Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all. There's been a lot of turmoil in our country. And every time I think about gathering together to practice with you and to offer a talk, I always wonder how, how is this relevant? Why, why are we continuing to practice here in this sort of seemingly passive way when there's so much going on in the world, so much social and political unrest, so much suffering. And here we are um, sitting. <laughs> and while I was watching the uh, events unfold on television on Wednesday, I happened to look over to my couch where my cat, Miso, was just sitting. He was just sitting. And my response to him was an immediate sense of calm. He, he affected me just as much as what was going on on television. So we are clearly affected by what is going on around us. But like Miso, we affect everything else around us because we are interconnected. So it goes both ways. We are not separate from all the turmoil that surrounds us, but all the turmoil isn't separate from our practice because we are connected with all of that. And so as we read in the words of Coben, when we sit, our glasses sit, our bodies sit, our, our pets sit, the house sits, the sun sits, the mountains sit because we're connected. And so our practice is not passive. We affect, because of our interconnectedness, we affect all things. There was a um, Suzuki Roshi uh, who led the San Francisco Zen Center was, her, was known to say, what we are doing here 
is so important that it's best not to take it too seriously. In other words, what we are doing is beyond frivolous or serious. It's very profound. And don't take it lightly. Don't think that we are not engaging the world when we sit and when we study the teachings of the Buddha. So let's continue. Let's continue to practice together and to share together. I have been taking this opportunity during these talks to examine the precepts from different points of view, um, maybe not directly. And today I want to continue taking a look at the precepts from the point of view of what might be called failing to observe the precepts. I hear so many people saying, I broke the precept. I made a big mistake. I violated the precepts. I want to invite you to consider the fact that there is no way you can break a precept. There is no way you can violate a precept. Why? Because precepts are not rules and you can't break them. They're not commandments, so you can't violate them. When we do things like lie or steal or gossip or hate, when we act poorly, when we when we, it, we make other people suffer or evoke suffering in ourselves, we are not breaking a precept. We might say, and I've been using this word to myself lately, that we're forgetting who we really are. We're not breaking anything. We're not violating anything. But we have forgotten who we would naturally be if we weren't afflicted with the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. The precepts are not a moral order they are a natural order. You can't break a natural order. It's always in process. There's no way we can not be fundamentally good and pure 
and compassionate and wise. There's no way we cannot be those, but we can forget that we are those. And instead of saying that we have violated something, we can say perhaps, and I invite you to consider this, that we have forgotten who we really are. So if that seems a more, a kinder <laughs> and a truer way of approaching the precepts, how is it that we can remember? How is it that we can remember who we really are? How can we awaken to our basic goodness, to the truth of our in interconnectedness, and to the recognition of the fact that this self-centeredness, this ego that we've constructed is the basis of a lot of suffering. How can we awaken? Well, some teachers, some Zen teachers have a very sometimes effective way of awakening people, helping them remember they take a stick and they strike them. <sighs> or they slap them across the face or tweak their nose or say something really outrageous that brings them out of their trance of forgetfulness into a space of remembering. Oh yes, this is, this is who I really am. So that it, those are some ways that Zen Dharma teachers, Zen masters will help people remember, awaken because the ego is very strong power in us, a hard nut to crack. And that striking with a stick or tweaking of the nose is an act of compassion. It's an act of helping someone to break out of this trance that the ego puts us in. There, there is another way of awakening that I like to explore with you today. And I'll do that by, me, by way of two stories. This is the way I, I, I'm calling the way of humiliation. In some sense, being struck by a teacher or having one's nose tweaked, or having a response which completely dumbfounds you is a form of humiliation, of awakening. 
And what is being humiliated is the ego, is this constructed self that we have. And I suspect that each of you has had the experience of being humiliated in some form. It might be just not being able to get the computer to work in front of everybody. It's like, I'm making mistakes. I'm making continuous mistakes. Small ways and very large ways. I was humiliated in a profoundly uh, painful way one time in a Zendo when <clears throat> the teacher called me out in front of the entire Sangha and brought me to tears because I was being arrogant, not thinking I was, but, but was in fact. So this is the first story about two Zen monks. One, a young monk from California and another from Japan who was in his late 70s. These two monks were brought together in order to test their understanding of the Buddhist teaching. This young monk who was from California uh, was had a reputation of, you might say, uh, demolishing his students by asking, asking questions of them repeatedly until they were reduced to, I don't know mind, just completely dumbfounded. Um, he was quite an aggressive monk and he had a, a very, very powerful reputation. And he was brought together with this monk from Japan in his, in his late 70s. And he was a hermit. He basically spent his life in the mountains practicing meditation. And they were brought together in what is sometimes called Dharma combat. And the young monk from California began by doing what he usually did when he was confronted with, you might say, a Dharma combatant. He held up an orange. This happens to be a grapefruit, but I happen, but I happen to have this. Uh, at home, I just realized that. So he could have held up this grapefruit and said, what is this? The old monk was silent. The young monk, what is this? old monk didn't answer. Of course, there's always three times. And 
the young monk went right up to his face and held the orange, the grapefruit up. And again, answer, what is this? Well, the Japanese monk who really didn't speak English uh, consulted with his translator. They were whispering to one another. And the translator then responded to everyone in the audience. The master says, doesn't this man, doesn't this man know what an orange is? Don't they have oranges in California? <laughs> At that, the young monk was completely dumbfounded. And the discourse, the dialogue, the combat stopped. He was reduced. He was humiliated. And in fact, he was reduced to the very state that he made a practice of reducing his students to in his aggressive approach to practice. So there's a story to be contemplated, to, to, be, to be explored. The next story is not about an orange or a grapefruit, but it is a personal story about a tomato. And I have told this story before. And you know, in our practice and in your life, I bet there are many stories, experiences that you've had that you revisit, that you revisit because there's something in that experience that you haven't fully understood or awakened to that there's still something to be gathered, to be processed through that experience. And this is one of those for me. I belong to a community supported agriculture farm a couple of years ago. And I went to pick up my basket of produce And there was a young woman giving out these baskets and she had various boxes of different cucumbers, tomatoes, lettuce, squash, <clears throat> peppers. And she was taking out things out of the boxes and putting them in my basket. And she took out, she was about to put a tomato in my basket. And I noticed that the tomato 
and I also have a tomato. But this, this is not, this is not the kind of tomato that she took out. She took out a tomato that had a scar on it. It had a crescent scar on it. And when I saw that, I said, you know something? You can keep that tomato. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't put that in my basket um, because it's, it's flawed. <laughs> I didn't say it's flawed, but it was very clear that this was not a tomato worthy of being put in my basket. And after I had said that to her, she held up the tomato to me, much as I bet the, the um, monk held up the tomato, the grapefruit or the orange. And she said, you know something? This tomato is smiling at you. See, the tomato had a crescent scar. And she, she held it up and she said, this tomato is smiling at you. And I was dumbfounded. And all I was able to do was to say, well, that's all right, put, I still don't want it. <laughs> put, it, put, it put it back. I got in my car and drove home, completely haunted by that smiling tomato. Um, and obviously to this day, I'm haunted <laughs> by that smiling tomato. And I, I was wondering, what am I feeling here? What is, I, I was disturbed. I was disturbed by that experience. And I, I'm just kind of checking in with myself, but I wasn't able to really understand what I was feeling. But today I do. It was humiliation. I was humiliated by a tomato. So how do we respond to humiliation, which is an insult to the ego? In fact, there are, in our practice, we often say that Zen practice is a continuous insult to the ego. And how do we usually respond to this insult, to this humiliation? Well, we often get defensive. 
and try to explain ourselves. Or we say a kind of automatic, I'm sorry, but it's just not genuine. It's just perfunctory. Or we blame. We blame someone else or some other situation for this humiliation that we've experienced. We try to restore our pride, hubris. We try to restore the power of our ego. Ego does not like to be humiliated or insulted. Or we may just completely deny it as we've seen lately in our political life. Anything, anything to keep that ego intact. But what could we experience? What could we allow ourselves to experience? We could allow ourselves to experience the vulnerability that lies at the heart of our humanness. We could experience tenderness. We could experience our humanity. Not, not in terms of being flawed or being mistaken or being wrong or having failed but just being human. And so we don't need to confess our sins or even apologize for our mistakes or regret our failures or try to explain them. We can simply absorb our humanity, our understanding that this is what it means to be human, is to behave forgetfully, that we forget. And we can remember, but sometimes we need to be humiliated in a very compassionate way, or even in not a compassionate way, even if it isn't compassionately done, we can still get in touch with that tenderness, with that openness, with that raw place within us, which is what our humanity is all about. We are not omnipotent. We don't have absolute power. We are not omniscient. We don't know everything. 
and we are not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere. In other words, we're not God. <laughs> we're human. It's not something to be proud of, and it's not something to be ashamed of. It's just something to be. And the last story is also one that some of you may have heard. And it's the story about our lineage holder, Kobinshino Roshi, who was a master archer, as well as a master calligrapher and a Zen master. He was also a poet and an artist. He was brought together uh, at a place called Esalen in California, a spiritual center. And they were giving a class in archery, Zen and the art of archery. And they brought in again, another Japanese master at archery to um, show their students what could be accomplished in the study of archery as a, a Zen practice. And so this uh, Japanese Zen archer began, they set up a bullseye right at the edge of the ocean. Um, uh, Esalen is overlooking the Pacific. And they set up a, a, um, a target and the Zen master went first from Japan, pulled his bow and hit the bullseye on that target, right in the center. And everybody applauded and was incredibly impressed because this was at a very great distance. And then Coben was invited to shoot, to shoot his bow. And he put the bow in, put the, uh, the arrow in the bow and pulled the string and let loose the arrow. And everybody watched while the arrow went above the target into the ocean. And Coben called out, bullseye. We can't break a precept. 